You're listening to Faith Assembly of God Online, a recording of our weekly service. Thanks for joining with us, a place where hope and reality converge. It is a blessing at uh, different times of the year, and this Christmas season represents one of those times of years that we have the privilege of either going home or everybody coming home. I don't know, uh, wherever it is in your, your phase of life, we're, we're still at that, that point in our family uh, where uh, Jody and I have the privilege, of course, the kids are already home, and so we spend Christmas together. We're already there, but then a couple days after Christmas, we have the privilege of getting in the car and making a three-and-a-half-hour drive back to Gettysburg to be with our family, and uh, uh, we always schedule it to make sure that all uh, six of us, my brothers and sisters and I, can get in at the same time to be together rather than in, uh, peppering mom and dad at different points. We can all arrive at the same time and be together. It's a, it's a highlight. It's a joy. And sometimes as you grow and as we go away, it's moments where we have to remember that there's some things that maybe in the journey we've left behind that we have to go back and pick up. There's some things in the process that we started off strong and maybe along the way it got a little weak and we need, to, we need to tighten it up and we need to refocus on some things that we've either left or forgotten along the way. Some things that we've not given attention to. And we've been doing this series now, this is our second week, and this whole idea of coming home. Last week we talked about returning to the place where we belong. And it was Joseph and Mary as they went back to Bethlehem. And the whole reason they went to Bethlehem is because the Bible says that's where Joseph belonged. He belonged to the house of David. We talked about Joseph's great, great, well, great times 35 grandfather, who would have been Jacob, who was a patriarch of, of the faith, who was literally, his name was called Israel. And so he was the father, the father of, of, of Israel, or he is Israel himself. And then, of course, his, his father, Isaac, and grandfather, Abraham. But Jacob, long before Bethlehem was ever established, came to a place and he named it Bethel. He arrived at this place and the way he got there is he was running away from his brother Esau. And as he's running away from his brother Esau, he spends the night in a place called Luz. Luz, which means the place of almond trees. And the almond trees was a great place for him to hide from his brothers. But while he was in Luz, he had a dream and had an encounter with God. You can read it in Genesis chapter 28. And as he had an encounter with God, he woke up the next morning and his life was completely changed. How many have had a moment in your life where God woke you up and your life was completely changed? Is there anybody this morning, somebody just give praise to God if you've had a moment in your life where God woke you up and your life was completely changed? Jacob had that moment in Genesis 28, and when he comes, comes awake, he says this place where he is is no longer going to be called Luz. He calls it Bethel. Instead of being called the place of almond trees, it's now the place that is called the house of God, which means he came as a refugee, but he left as a relative. And in that place called Bethel, long before Bethlehem, but also Bethlehem is where we would get the, the root word of Bethel, but long before there was Bethlehem, there was Bethel, a place where Jacob, the great, great, great times 35 grandfather of, of Joseph, the father of Jesus, had an encounter with God and literally there his life was restored. You see, because the important thing is that we return to the place where we belong. You were created by God for God for his purpose. You belong to God. The unfortunate thing is that we, the Bible says, all like sheep have gone astray. 
all of us have gone our own separate ways. We, we all belong to God, but because of sin, we have all gone astray. We've gone the wrong way. But thanks be to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who draws us back. And so returning to the place where we belong. And that place where we belong is a place of restoration. How many know that there is still a God today? The God who does restoration in people's lives. He's still a God of making new. still a God of restoring. And whatever situation or circumstance we're in, that we serve a God who is able to bring restoration and able to restore. The Bible says it like this, the words of God himself in 2 Chronicles 7.14 says this, if my people, everybody say my. We say that word a lot. My, that's my car, my wife, my kids, my church, my stuff, my. We use this my, and here's God using this my. And he's saying, if my people here he is he's being possessive and he's saying these people who belong to me he said if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then will i hear from heaven forgive their sins and heal their land how many believe we serve a god who still hears our prayers forgives our sins and heals our land anybody think we serve a god who still does that today So if we serve a God who still is in the business of restoration, still in the business of making things new, then that means we have something great to look forward to. That's why today, last week we talked about returning to the place where we belong. This morning I want to talk about returning to the place of the promise. In Matthew chapter 2, we read the story of some wise men. We read the story of these wise men who traveled a great distance, and the Bible gives some, 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 a story background that we can look at today, and I want to take a look at us returning to the place of the promise. Matthew chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can look at it there with me this morning. If you and I were to say to Mary, if Mary and Joseph were here today, and you would go to Mary and Joseph, and you would say to them, why are you taking a long trip to Bethlehem? About three or four days worth of travel. Why are you packing the donkey with what little things you have? You're poor, you don't have hardly anything, and you're packing everything up, and you're gonna take a three to four day journey to go to Bethlehem. If you were to ask Mary and Joseph why they were doing or taking such a trip, I'm sure they would respond to us and say, well, the reason we're going is because Caesar has issued a census and a new tax is about to be in place. And because he has issued a census, we must go. And so for the reason or the reason we're going to Bethlehem is because it's a political matter. How many would acknowledge or say that's probably the reason they would give us today that in light of that moment and that situation when you would say to Mary and Joseph, why are you traveling back to Bethlehem? They'd say politics. But you and I are removed from it and we can see today in the present, in the moment of what they were in, the reason they were going to Bethlehem is because some Caesar, Caesar Augustus, put something in in place and made it law that they had to go. And so they were forced by political, political forces to go back to that place. But you and I look at it today and from a distance we know that they didn't go to Bethlehem because of political matters. They went to Bethlehem because Bethlehem was the place of the promise. They went to Bethlehem 
Bethlehem because that's where God spoke his promise. And here's what I want to encourage us today, that when we leave here this morning, that we leave here today not seeing life from the perspective of our living life according to life circumstances, but seeing life according to God's promises. Too many times we live according to life circumstances and we limit what God is able to do because we perceive life circumstances as being out of control or unfortunate or or things that get in the way when in reality God works through life circumstances. I don't know about you, but that's good news. Because that means even though it was a political reason that sent them back, God was still greater than the politics of that day. And God said what looks like a political matter is something far greater. I've got a promise that is greater than what you can see right now. And you're going back not because of your life circumstances. You're going back because I have a promise that is waiting for you. And I'm decreeing and setting things in order in your life. And I'm preparing you for a great promise to take place in your life. I would much rather live life looking at the promise that God has for me than life circumstances that hinder me? How about you today? Do we tend to live life in the perspective of our life is not the great promises that God is preparing us for or what God is setting us up for, but is it sometimes that we see life circumstances as great hindrances and problems? And to even say things like, man, God could really do great things if... And when God says he puts the if in front of my people, we take the if and put it in front of our circumstances. God says if my people, and we take the if that God put in front of his people who belong to him, and we put it in front of our circumstances. Instead of reading God's words to say if my people who are called by my name, we say if my circumstances. Or is it just me? And we limit or miss, and instead of living life with the perspective of the promises that God has for us, we limit what God wants to do in our lives. Matthew chapter 2. Are you ready for the word? Can I tell you a corny joke? Somebody said no. Too bad. I'm the preacher. No, kidding. (laughs) That wasn't nice. My mom's going to smack me. Uh, this little boy, maybe you still need more time to turn to Matthew chapter 2. Little boy lived in Texas. He was preparing for a Christmas art contest that he was participating in. He drew his, uh, his picture, and uh, the teacher recognized it. The teacher was impressed. He said, he said, son, this looks great. You've got three, three people bringing gifts. It looks like the manger. These must be the wise men. And the uh, teacher said to him, but son, why, why is this red fire truck over here? To which the little boy in his deep Texas accent said, well, the Bible said that the wise men came from afar. (laughs) I told you it was corny. Matthew chapter 2, all right. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Here's what the Bible says about the wise men. And here's our prayer. God, make us wise people. Make us wise people. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men came from eastern lands, arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. That bothers me. I read that, and what bothers me is that it doesn't say, and some other people in Jerusalem. It says... Everyone, I can't help but say to myself, if I were serving in the temple during that day, 
what would I have done when these wise men came and said, we saw the star? Oh, you flaky people, you come all the time. (laughs) Bible says King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. The prophet Micah wrote these words, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back to me, so I can go and worship him too. Father, I ask God that you would give us understanding this morning. Lord, I pray that your word, Lord, would quicken our hearts. And Father, that we would respond, God, not according to our circumstances, but God, that we would have a perspective to respond according to your promises. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you the backdrop here and what is taking place. This is now about two years after Jesus has been born. So Jesus, this is not like our, our uh, uh, nativity show that wise men showed up to baby Jesus. Uh, the wise men would have shown up not when Jesus was in the manger anymore. Jesus at this point, his family was no longer in the cave. They were now living in a house. It was probably a house that was in the family line because J- or, uh, Joseph was from that place. And so here it is, Jesus with his family are now in a home and Jesus is about two years old. And the the scenario now is they're in Bethlehem. They're still in Bethlehem. They didn't leave Bethlehem until after the wise men visit. And while they're in Bethlehem, about six miles away in Jerusalem, these visitors come from a great distance. All we know is that they traveled from afar. Not the hillbilly far, but the distance far. We know that they came from a great distance, and they come, we don't know how long it is, we only know this, we don't even know how many there are. We only know they're bringing three gifts, we know that they came from a distant land, and likely would have come from a region of Babylon. That's all that we would know. And so here they're traveling, and they arrive in Jerusalem. And the reason they go to Jerusalem is because these wise men were from Babylon. They were from the place, and what they knew in Babylon, because they were astrologers, they were magi. And the magi, what that word magi means, magicians. But they weren't magicians as we know it today with the whole, the tricks and the sorcery and all that stuff. They were magicians in their day, basically called scientists. What we would call scientists today, they were called magi or magicians. But they were basically just scientists that would study and learn, and they would discover things and so they would look at the stars they were astrologers of sorts but they had heard stories throughout decades and and generations and years they would have known that there was a star they knew there was a star and they knew where the star would come from they knew what the star represented but they did not know where the star would be exactly they knew that it would come from from Israel and here it is the first thing that makes the wise men wise is that they arrive at the temple and the first thing they say is not anything of their, their knowledge. The first thing they say is, where is the newborn king of the Jews? You see, I find it interesting. The only reason we could call them wise men is not because they showed up to tell everybody what they knew, but they showed up to ask the questions to the people they needed to get the information from. Let me say it this way. You're not a wise person because you think you know it all. You're a wise person because you know where to find the answers you don't know. 
Wisdom is not to pretend or perceive that you know everything. Wisdom is the ability to ask the questions in the right places to find the information that you don't have. And here we are, we have wise men, and the first thing we hear out of the wise men's mouth is a question saying, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east. We have come to worship him. Where is he? And these wise men are wise because they come up or they show up in this place looking to find the answer. And I think that's important for us because sometimes we pretend to be wise, not based on what we need to know, but based on what we think we already know. Sometimes we perceive wisdom in ourselves, where we're quick to give opinion when God, God doesn't need us to give opinion. God needs us to ask more questions than we need to give more answers sometimes. That there's a place of learning and here's this, the wise men, they're in this, this situation and, and they show up and the first thing they say is we have seen his star. Or they say we have come to worship him. Where, where is this king of the Jews? See, they knew the stuff that, they, that, they were, that, that, that got them to that place, but they had this one thing, and that was where the star was exactly. They knew that there'd be a star. They knew the star would come from Israel, and they knew it represented the king, but they had no idea of where the star would take them. And so here they are, and they're asking the question, and now here's something I find interesting. Here you have these wise men, and they travel a great distance to come worship Jesus, and do you realize they're asking the questions of the teachers of the law and the priests, and all the while they're in a temple that is just six miles away, about a half day's journey. This is interesting to me that wise men travel days to come find Jesus and they ask the question of people who he's only six miles away from and they don't even go six miles to go find him. They're sitting where they are and instead of going to where the promise is, they sit inside of the temple and they teach about how to worship God, but they never leave the temple to go and worship the promise of the one that they're teaching about. They talk and they know all the answers. They know everything about it, but they never leave the place to go even just six miles to meet with Jesus. Here's a danger to all you young people. This is a danger for everybody, but especially young people who grow up in the church. There's a danger to grow up around the presence of God and become so numb to it that you never experience it for yourself. There's a danger to know so much about God that you have so much information and you have so much knowledge and you perceive things and you watch things and you have a knowledge of things but you never experience it yourself. You can become so good at giving the answers and we're sometimes so filled with answers that we don't know what it is to just walk in faith because we're so quick to give answers and reasons and justify and we, we, can, we can talk our way into anything. We can talk about stuff and we're good at talking about it but there's a disconnect between walking it. Here they are in the temple talking all about the promise, but not one of them left the temple to even go six miles to go see the promise. It's just me, maybe, but I think that's pretty weird that wise men come from a great distance to find this Messiah, but there were some that weren't willing to even go any distance at all. They came from afar to worship from a great distance They were just six miles away. They got caught up, and could it be that they got caught up in such policy that they lost sight of the promise? Could it be that they became so concerned of the right way to do worship that they missed setting their eyes on the one they came to worship? Could it be that they were so caught up in the system and the structure that they missed the Savior in the midst of it all? Could it be that they were so caught up in the right thing and the right way? And I believe here's what the enemy's good at doing. The enemy's good at getting us into a place where we, we grow well with opinion. And we're good at having opinion. I, I watch Christian television, I do. 
But I have a problem sometimes with Christian television when all we're doing on Christian television is bashing another Christian. It really bothers me that we have missed the heart of what it really means and we occupy ourselves with what doesn't matter. And we for, I've said it this way to our staff. I said, how many times have we played, we've, we've spent our time playing preseason ball when God wants us to play championship ball? We're playing games that don't matter and God wants us to be in the championship games where we get to a place that matters. And we're playing preseason ball and we're playing games with stuff that in the end of the day, this doesn't matter. And we come to church and we're all good at preseason warm-ups, but where's the battle? Where's the fight? Where's the running after what really matters? And we're really good at playing preseason and the games that don't matter, and we forget to show up in the championship games when they are the games that really do matter. Sometimes we're busy, occupied in the temple doing preseason ball, and we forgot to take a six-mile journey to go play the championship ball. I don't know why it's quiet right now. I'm very uncomfortable. I don't like it quiet. It's not... But it's sometimes we have to ask ourselves, have we become placated by the idea of worshiping God, but not driven by the heart of worshiping God? We become placated or lulled to sleep, lullabied by the idea of knowing God, but have not become driven by the reality of knowing God. And we can know all about him. We can, we, can, we can be in the temple and in the place where it is, but miss what he has for us. The wise men would have learned years ago about the promise. And here's what made the wise men different. I made this statement as a youth pastor. And I believe there's young people here that can make this a difference. But as a youth pastor, I found it easier to light a fire under a kid who is unsaved from an unsaved home than I could a kid who is from a saved home. As a youth pastor, now I know it's been a number of years ago since I've been a youth pastor, I know that. But I remember as a youth pastor, it, was, it felt easier to light the fire under kids who had no church background than it was to light the fire under kids who grew up under it all their life. And I remember that struggle saying, God, we've got to reach Israel, but Israel's not listening, so i got to go out and reach Galilee or reach the, the other areas because I'm trying to get Israel's attention, but they've heard it so many times. They're lulled to sleep. They ignore it. They don't care because they become so good at hearing it, and they just stay inside the temple. They show up. They've heard all the stuff. They know the stuff, but they've never left to go on a six-mile journey to go to where the promise is, and they live a life of existence rather than living the life of the promise. They're caught up and learning and taught how to make big issues out of things that don't matter and forget to matter about the things that really do count and living their life for what really exists and for what really carries. In our lives, it can be sometimes, there's a commentator who said it this way, he said it's, it is truly an instance of base sluggish that not one of the Jews offers himself as an escort to these wise men to go and see the king who is promised to their own nation. Not one of these priests say, hey, I'll take you there. The priests say, it's in Bethlehem. We haven't gone. We know the answer, but we haven't gone. My challenge to us today is that we don't become content to just live near the promise and miss out on really living in the promise. 
the promise that God has for us, the more that he wants to pour into our lives. Let me, let me tell you what, what made the wise men wise, and that was that they held on to the promises that they would have heard years ago. Why did the wise men know to look for a star? We can answer that question out of Numbers. In Numbers, there's a scripture that it comes from, from a man by the name of Balaam. If you ever heard of Balaam, Balaam had a donkey. Well, Balaam would have been a wise man. He would have been an ancestor of these wise men. They were, from, they were a family clan. And Balaam would have been one of the early wise men who was from, that, from that, that, uh, uh, the wise men tree. <laughs> you belong to the wise men. Here's Balaam. He makes these words. These are Balaam's words speaking of Israel. And Balaam says these words. I see him but not here and now. I perceive him but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. And here's one word that these wise men would have heard an ancestor of theirs speak. And they would have held that word. And that means all the time while they were looking for the, in, the, in the, the stars and in the astrology and all this stuff, they were waiting and looking for that one star that would rise up, that would be, would be the one that would come out of Israel that would point the direction. They were holding on to that word. The other reason they would have had truth or had knowledge is because Daniel would have been from the same place when they were, when they were made captive. You remember in, uh, in Daniel, of course, they were made captive. Israel was taken back to Babylon or they were taken to Babylon. And here's Daniel, one of the leaders. And if you read about Daniel, he's, he's a Jew. He's, he's from Israel, but they are now captured. Why are they captured? Because they were punished by God. I want you to know that even sometimes when you're in God's punishment it's God still not forsaking his promise because here catch this while they're still in Babylon because they're being punished Daniel is teaching the wise men and giving them words and giving them prophecy because in Daniel chapter 4 Daniel says things like the anointed one will come forth his seed will not leave David it will be a scepter in his hand and David be, or Daniel begins to prophesy in Babylon what's that mean he begins to cast seed in the people who will eventually a couple hundred years later end up coming from a great distance to worship the king which means even in your punishment God's word and his promise is still active and still producing even in your failure God's word is still creating something great even in your misfortune God's word oh man I feel that I don't know if anybody else maybe needs to hear that this morning settle down settle down I'm sorry, but I just think it's great news to think or to know that even in their punishment, they were sent to Babylon because of their failure. But even in their failure, God was planting seed so that there would be fruit that would come from that, that there would be wise men that would come because Daniel, who was a part of that punishment, not Daniel himself, but because he was a part of that nation, was in that place planting seed and telling them so that a couple hundred years later, there would be magi coming from the east who would come or from that place to come and worship the newborn king my point is this God's word is always active and his word is faithful his word is true even in your faithlessness God's word still remains faithful even in our failure God's word still remains powerful and true the promise of God's word must be what drives us there's a concern that we can become so lulled to sleep as we said that it can become so normal so much accustomed to us that we miss it let me talk about God's word for a moment. Matthew 4, Jesus says these words, and he's reiterating what is said in Deuteronomy. And he says these words, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That means this, the fuel in my life must be God's word. And that fuel, what drives me, must be the word of God that causes me to, that, that it causes me to see my world, not in view of life's circumstances, but in view of God's promises. Not to see according to life's difficulties, but to see according to God's great ability and God's great power and what God is able to do. In our lives, I'm not a mechanic, but all I know is this, that if you put bad fuel inside your car, it's going to affect it. Some mechanics say yes. I think I know what I'm talking about. I have no idea. But all I know is the fuel that you put into something affects it. Let me ask you, in your lives, if that bread equals fuel, if, if man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, that means what I live by must be the word and the promise of God. If I put bad fuel in my life, then I, it's going to have an effect in my life. Here's what the Bible, when you look up the Greek word for promise, here's what it means. The word promise in the Greek, the definition is this, to speak. I thought it would be deeper than that too, I know. You're waiting for something profound. I was too. But yet when I thought about it and I looked at the Greek of what the word promise means, it simply means to speak. I think that's where we could say things like, my word is as good as promise. Right? It, my word, or, uh, my, my word is, is, is a promise. Here's what it's saying, that every time God opens his mouth, all he ever speaks is promise. You, you know, you and I speak English, at least most of us attempt to. I do. I attempt to try to speak English. Sometimes I don't quite do well. We speak English, but do you realize the language God speaks? Promise. Think about that. See, the Bible says in John, I believe it's chapter 8, that the devil is the father of lies, and his native tongue is lies, which means when the devil speaks, every time he speaks, he speaks lies, but every time God speaks, he speaks promise. Have you ever been in a conversation and you said to somebody, you said, hey, let me think out loud for a moment. And I've had these conversations with the staff, with Pastor Josh, with individuals, and I'll say, hey, let me think out loud for a moment. And what I'm saying is, I'm going to say things out loud, but don't hold me to what I'm saying because I'm just thinking out loud right now. So that means I can retract anything I might say because I'm just thinking out loud, right? How many know God has never had a I'm thinking out loud moment? God has never opened his mouth and said, oh, wait a minute, you know what, I meant that back then, but now. Do you realize all that God ever speaks is a promise? All that he's ever spoken is a promise. Everything that he speaks is a direct promise. And here's what we've got to ask ourselves this morning. What is it that we're listening to? What is it that we have? If we're going to return to the promise, if we're going to return to the place of God's promise, then you've got to ask ourselves this question this morning. What language are we filling our minds with? Let me explain it this way. Seeing is not believing all the time. Hearing is more important than seeing. Let me explain this. You see, because the moment you hear something, it grabs your attention. The reason you're looking at me right now is because I'm long-winded, I'm loud, and I'm talking, and I've got fast words, and you've got to listen intently because I can only catch every third word he's saying. I don't understand him. So you're listening. But if Al were to all of a sudden jump up in the back corner and say, hey, I'm sure every one of us would do one of these. Why? Because whatever is spoken or whatever you hear at that moment has your attention. Have you ever noticed that you only hear certain things when everything else gets silent? There are times I'd be sitting at the house and everybody's in bed and I'm spending my time either reading or just me. And all of a sudden the house is making noises I've never heard before. 
Now, I don't have this panic, this panic thing of, oh, what is that? But my wife has watched too many shows in the past called Infested. Back when we lived in Dillsburg, that was a show she loved to watch. She loved to watch how bats were all inside the attics and how they had to get them out and everything like that. But you never hear it until everything else is quiet. But the moment you hear it, it draws your attention. That's why the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The point is this, whatever has your hearing, whatever, whatever words, whatever language you're listening to is conditioning your eyes to see things that way. Let me tell you, I know, sounds like an old school preacher. It's okay, because it's just the truth. If you're filling your mind with garbage music, then you're teaching your eyes to look at garbage. If you're filling your eyes, your ears, and you're listening to stuff, and you put this balance, and you know, oh, I got 50-50, then really what that means is I've got 50% good promise, and I got 50% lies. Then really what I'm saying is I'm only catching God half the time. Which you might as well say that I'm just content being at the temple and not going six miles to where God has for me. I know this sounds like old school preaching. Oh, he's an old school preacher talking about you shouldn't listen to... listen. It's not just the music, it's the conversations we have. And if you fill your eyes or your ears with all the language of lies, then you have conditioned your eyes to look and see lies. I don't know why in the church we think this is a spiritual thing to do. And we think it's spiritual to get around each other and all sit around and talk about how bad the world is. We feel like better Christians or something when we do that. I, I'm being facetious. But I have been sometimes in places, and it's like, we're believers in Jesus. We don't need to talk about how bad the world is. Let's talk about how great the hope and the glory is because we've conditioned ourselves to see the problems, and so all we ever see is, well, that's a problem, that's a problem, that's a problem, that's, a, that's an issue, that's an issue. But oh, if I would fill my, my ears with the promise, I would begin to say, oh, that's great. God's gonna do something awesome there. Look what God's about to do. Instead of looking at our world and saying, man, it's getting evil, evil, dark, dark, I wanna look at the world and say, it's about time for the return of Jesus Christ. We're living at the best day of history we're in a place for something great and awesome so why sit back and say oh man the world's so horrible i think we ought to rise up and say god's about to do something awesome in our world i'm just stupid i guess i think we need to have a perspective change of how we look we got to go back to the promise back to the the promise of what god's word is that we have something great to look forward to we have something great to look forward. do you believe that this morning I believe the report of the Lord. I may have gotten a doctor's report, but I believe the report of the Lord. And can I tell you that because I believe the report of the Lord, I believe that God can restore my body, but should he decide to take this body I still, with my eyes, will see the promise and the hope and the glory of God. That's how rich and real this glory is, that it's not contained by circumstances of life, of whether I'm healed or not healed, whether I'm rich or not rich, whether I have little or whether I have much. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with a promise that says this, that no weapon formed against me shall prosper. No matter what it is that might take my life, there is a hope and a promise that I will live forever. I believe Jesus. 
I believe the Adam who is not the one who brought sin into the world, but I believe the Adam who is the first to rise from the dead. I believe in the Adam who set up a kingdom, who is sitting at God's right hand, making intercession for me. And because of the hope of Jesus Christ, I've got something great to look forward to. I don't care how bad my health might be getting. God, give me wisdom to do good with my health decisions. Pray for me. I don't care how bad things might be. I know this, that my God is faithful. And I've got a hope and a promise. I'm going to ask Ashley to come and help us close this morning. Whatever has your attention is what your eyes set upon. Here's what the wise men said. The wise men came and they said, where is the newborn king? We have seen his star. Have you seen his star? What's the star? Well, the star is any opportunity for him to shine. So when you're looking at life, and you're looking at life, are you seeing the opportunities for God to shine? Are you seeing his star rise up? Or are you seeing the difficulty, the disappointment, the hardship? Because here's what troubles me. Herod heard the news. Herod was not a Jew. He was an adopted Jew. He, he, he was appointed by the, the, the Roman governor, and he was not a Jew. He practiced Judaism just to go through the motions. But the Bible says the moment Herod heard the words, Herod was deeply disturbed. So was all of Jerusalem with him. Here's what I've asked myself. Would I be the one who's disturbed? Because quite honestly, I don't want to leave this temple. I like the way I've created it. I like the way it's been. I know the king's not real, but he takes good care of us. And if I leave this place and go six miles and worship that king, this king might kick me out. And I'm not sure I'm willing to be bothered that way. So I'd rather just play it safe and stay where I am. Why is it that when God wants to show us a great promise, we can sometimes, instead of seeing his promise, we see a threat? I've had moments in my life where God is calling me to lay down things. God either calling me to a fast or calling me to quit watching this much TV or whatever it is where God's getting my attention. And there have been times I have said to God, why do I have to do that? And I've somehow perceived what God wants to do for me as a threat rather than a great promise. I have perceived it as something of great value that he's asking me to give up when in reality, it's nothing compared to what he wants to give me in return. And you say, well, why can't he just give me it without it? Because I'll never value what he's given me without letting go of what I think I have. I'll never value what he wants to put into my life 
if I don't let go of what I think I have in my life. Sometimes I have to allow God to disturb me enough to let it go. But Herod was disturbed more and held on even tighter. See, God has a promise for you. And here's what the Holy Spirit would say to some of you today. You're forfeiting God's promise because you're settling for what you think you have when in reality you don't have what you think you have. You're forfeiting something great to remain holding on to something of not much value. I don't know what that means for you, but one of the things that comes to mind is sometimes we can do that with relationships. We can sometimes hold on to relationships that are not honoring to God. And instead of honoring God, we hold on to things. And we try to convince God, we'll we'll be okay. And God says, I don't want to take from you. It's not what I want to take from you. It's what I want to give you. And why do we see God's promise as a threat rather than a blessing? Am I making sense to somebody this morning? Instead of seeing the great abundance or the blessing he wants to pour into our life, we too many times end up looking at God and think he wants to rip something from us. Can I tell you, he is not the God who takes. He is only the God who gives. He is the God that even if he would take, it's only because he wants to get this little thing out of the way so he can put something greater in its place. It's not a God who wants to take from you. It's a God who wants to give unto you. That's the God we serve. Don't perceive what God wants to do in your life as a threat. See what God wants to do in your life as something of a flourishing promise, a hope that God wants to bring alive in you. So some of you need to go back to the promise. Some of you are living life and you're you're, you're content living in the temple and you've learned how to worship God. You've learned how to go through the motions. You've learned how to do stuff. You've learned things. God says, but I don't want you to just be comfortable living in the temple. I want you to take a six-mile journey and go to Bethlehem and see with your own eyes the promise that I have for you. Thanks for listening. Tune in again next week.